what the real gospel is. It's the power of God unto salvation. We've already started with Romans 1, 16. And I've covered up through the end of Romans chapter 3. Not, I haven't covered all of it, but I briefly went through it. And let me just go back to Romans chapter 3, verse 28, where here's the conclusion of the first three chapters. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. And that's the gospel is that we can have justification or right relationship with God through faith in Jesus and not through our actions. And I've tried to expound on that. Of course, every single speaker has been saying this in different words, but this is what really releases the power of God in your life is when you disconnect it from your worth and instead you just put it on what Jesus has done for you. As Arthur was sharing this morning about his great love, it's because of his love for you that God does all of these things, not because you deserve it or any worth or value on your own. The thing that makes us uh, lovely is the fact that God loves us. Amen. Not the things that we do. So in Romans chapter four, I want to get to the end of Romans chapter five, which two chapters in 30 minutes is for me a first class miracle. I'm just going to have to skip through a lot of things, but in what he's done, he's already made these points. And now in Romans chapter four, he takes two of the greatest Old Testament examples that we have. And that's Abraham and David and shows you how that they had this revelation of the gospel, that they believed God. It wasn't based on their performance. And when he begins to say these things, it really becomes obvious. But you know, most people read and they read about Abraham and think, man, he was a holy man. If Abraham was living today and if he did the things recorded in scripture today that he did back then, it would be a scandal. He would be criticized and rejected by the religious church. Abraham committed, uh, well, I don't know that you'd call it adultery, but boy, when uh, his wife suggested that he go into his handmaiden, Sarai, I mean, uh, Hagar, and have a child with her, there was no argument on his point part. He just did it. And they had an Ishmael, which uh, is how the whole Arab-Israeli conflict that we have today started is because of his disobedience. Abraham lied about his wife, Sarah, twice because he was afraid that she was so beautiful that people would kill him to get to his wife. And so he says, I've never seen this woman. Do with her whatever you want. If I did that with my wife, I guarantee you, you would run from me as you should. Abraham was not the most qualified person. For instance, Abraham meant Melchizedek. A lot of people believe Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus, and it's possible. I'm just not sure on all of that. But Melchizedek was much more qualified. Matter of fact, the scripture in Hebrews chapter 7 even makes a big point of saying that Melchizedek was the greater because Abraham paid tithes unto him, and Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and without any contradiction, the less is blessed of the greater. So Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, and yet God didn't choose Melchizedek, he chose Abraham. 
And the reason is because in Genesis chapter 15, verse six, he says, look at the stars in the sky, count the grains of sand on the seashore. If you can number them, so shall your seed be. And Genesis 15, six says that Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And that is a major point in the book of Galatians and also right here in Romans chapter four. And so Abraham was not justified or declared right with God because of his actions. Abraham had some serious problems and yet God used him and he was the father of the Jewish nation. He's called the father of us all in the book of Romans. And so if people would look at it, you should be able to see the grace of God even under the old covenant because God dealt with people based on mercy and grace. And that's what he's saying about Abraham. In verse two, he says, for if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That's Genesis fifteen six. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So it's very clear that it's what made Abraham in right standing with God was his faith, not his actions, not all of the things that he did. Now, there's a balance to this. As Barry was sharing yesterday, it's true that this is what God had done. He offered these things to him by grace, but he did believe, and then that did eventually cause actions. And it talks about that in the last part of the fourth chapter. But it was his faith that appropriated relationship with God, not his great works. And then it uses David as an example in verse seven, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, blessed are they whose sin or whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. This is a quotation from Psalms chapter 32. And David was looking forward to the day that you and I live in. David wasn't talking about what he had because under the old covenant, Romans chapter five, verse 13 and other places, I'll say these things briefly this morning if I can talk quick enough, but um, sin was imputed under the Old Testament law. Under the time that David was living, God was holding man's sins against them and God was judging man's sins. And David was looking forward by faith to the day that you and I live in. And he said, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Notice the terminology, not only does not or did not, but will not even in the future. David by faith saw a time coming to where sin was not be imputed unto people. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, 19, there it says that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing man's trespasses unto us, unto them, and has committed unto us this word of reconciliation. And we beseech you therefore as ambassadors for Christ, be ye therefore reconciled unto God. Jesus God was reconciling man unto himself and the way he did it was by not imputing their trespasses unto them. You know, I could spend a lot of time talking about the word impute because that's not a word that we use a lot, but it just means that God wasn't holding 
man's sins against them. He wasn't dealing with men according to their sins. And David looked forward and saw this and said, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So the reason that Paul brought this out is because he's already established that nobody is righteous. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so the conclusion was that a man is justified by putting faith in what Jesus has done instead of earning it by your actions. And he uses Abraham and David as two Old Testament examples, which if anybody had read these things, they should have been able to see it. But you know, most of us have a filter. Religion has put this mindset in us about you've got to be right. You've got to do right to be right. You've got to earn these blessings of God. And most of us read the Bible with that kind of a filter on and we just see the wrath and the punishment and all of these kind of things. But grace was in the Old Testament. David saw it. David prophesied about it. You know, if you'd stop and think about it, did you know that the majority of the Bible was written by murderers? Has anybody ever thought about this? Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible as well as Psalms chapter 90. And Moses wrote five of those and he killed an Egyptian thinking that was God's will and it wasn't God's will. He murdered a man. And then David murdered Uriah and David wrote most of the Psalms and then First and Second Samuel, much of First and Second Chronicles Part of 1 Kings was all written about David and he was a murderer. And then Paul was a murderer. He said that he took people and consented unto their death. Paul wrote half of the New Testament. The majority of the Bible was written by murderers. How in the world people think that you gotta be holy in order to have God move in your life. It's just like you're missing something. That's not saying that God wants murder or that he approves of it, but it shows you the grace of God that he used people. And basically this is what this is doing. He's showing you that Abraham missed God big time. You know, let me just uh, go back up to a um, verse here in Romans chapter four. And in verse four, it says, now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Notice that the only people who get justified are ungodly people. If you aren't ungodly, you can't be justified. If you are trusting in your goodness and saying, well, I'm really good. I'm not ungodly. Then you can't be justified. God only justifies ungodly people. You've got to come to a place that you recognize that you at your best are short of what God intended us to be and you can't trust in yourself. You have to put faith in a savior. And then he begins to use um, Abraham as an example again, just for time's sake, I'm gonna skip some of these verses, but look in verse 13. It says, for the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, that means through his actions conforming to some set of standard, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of none effect. Man, I could spend an hour on that, but the word of God is so powerful. His promises are sure, they're established But through you trusting in the law, trusting in your own self, you void the promise and you make faith of none effect. 
Paul said it this way over in Galatians chapter 2. He says that if, um, I forget the exact wording. I'm going to have to turn over there and read this. Let me just read this quickly out of Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 is where he says, I am crucified with Christ. But the next verse uh, says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. If you are trying to be justified, declared free from the guilt and the penalty, that means all of the bad effects of sin through your own actions, through keeping some standard of the law, you make Christ dead in vain. What a strong statement. Also in in, uh, Galatians chapter five, look at this in verse It says, Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. If you are trying to receive healing, deliverance, as uh, Greg was talking about wisdom, if you're trying to appropriate any of the things that God has given you by you fulfilling and doing everything, then you make Christ of none effect. You are fallen from grace. That doesn't mean that you've lost your salvation. It means you aren't walking in grace. You aren't receiving the benefit of grace. The moment that you start thinking that God, I've got to earn these things, it makes Christ of none effect. It, it, it just voids what he's done in your life. And brothers and sisters, this is exactly what has happened to many of us because of the religious teaching where it's performance-based and you've got to do all of these things in order for God to bless you. It voids what Christ has done. Your faith is in yourself and it makes you vulnerable because the, the devil cannot accuse Jesus. If the devil was to come and say, well, Jesus doesn't heal today, most of you would immediately reject that because you believe what the word says and you believe that it is God's will and he does heal today. And you would reject criticism and accusations against Jesus, against God the Father. But what he does is come and say, oh, sure, God can do these things, but what makes you think he would do it for you? You don't deserve it. And this is where our faith fails is because we think that we have to be worthy of it. And that's where Satan hinders us. Man, that is a powerful truth right there. If you could understand that it is not your performance, if you get rid of this law mentality that I've got to earn it and I've got to keep all of these rules. And if your faith was only in Jesus, then your faith could never be shot down because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you would have a steady, consistent faith. Man, that is, that is powerful. Amen. Back in the book of Romans chapter four, uh, I'm just going to summarize some of these verses in Romans chapter four, but then he begins to use Abraham as an example, how it was his faith that produced everything that happened in his life, not his performance. Abraham messed up. Abraham failed as all of us do, but he believed God. Despite his failures, he kept hold of the promise that God had given him. And there's some great things to teach from the end of Romans chapter four about faith. But the main focus here is that it wasn't his performance. It was his faith in God that made him have all of these promises come to pass. And of course, today we know thousands of years later that millions and millions and millions of people were born to him 
and the whole Jewish nation and all of these promises that God made, they all came true because of Abraham's faith, not because of his performance. And so that's the point that's made through the end of Romans chapter four. And then in chapter five, verse one, it says, therefore, or let me just back up and read the last couple of verses of Romans chapter four. He says, but uh, in verse uh, 24, now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed unto him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus, our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. So these things written about Abraham were written for us so that we could also believe and receive relationship with God by faith in what Jesus has done instead of faith in ourself. Then he says in chapter five, verse one, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, I could camp there a long time. But you know, most people really do not have true peace in their relationship with God because they feel that they've got to perform and do all of these things to make themselves accepted with God. They believe that when they do God, God do well. God loves them. When they do badly, God is upset with them. Many of you won't own up to that, but I can guarantee you that's what you think because I deal with a lot of people. There's a lot of people that, you know, when you've done everything just right, you think, boy, God is so blessed to have me on his side. And you just feel that God loves you. But when you mess up, you think, oh God, how could you use me? It's because you are basing God's love for you upon your performance. And you know, Arthur made a great message on that this morning about he loved you before the foundation of the world, before you were ever born, before you ever did anything. God loves you because he is love, not because you are lovely. God just chooses to love you. God is love. And when you understand that, then you can have peace with God because it's not based on your performance. See, if you don't understand this, if you are of the mindset that you've got to do all of these things to make yourself loved by God, you will never have peace because even if you do good today, you have no guarantee that you're going to do good tomorrow. You can't rest. You can't relax because it's all on your shoulders. You've got to perform. You're just on this treadmill. And if you ever stop, <laughs> you're going to have your feet knocked out from under you. You've got to just constantly perform. But see, once you understand justification by faith, then you can have peace with God. Man, I know that God loves me. I didn't do anything to make him love me. I can't make him love me more. I can't make him love me less. God loves me, period. God just loves me. And once you understand that, then you start resting in him and you have peace with God. Man, that's awesome. And then the next verse says, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Again, I could spend an hour or two on this because even though God has done these things and we're justified by faith, you have to access them. By faith is how you get into this grace, how you begin to appropriate it. You know, I've got a great, great book entitled uh, Living in the Balance of Grace and Faith. And it shows that grace is God's part. Faith is our part. Grace is something that's already done 
He's already released his grace. It has nothing to do with you, but whether or not it impacts your life is dependent on whether you believe and receive. So see, this is a perfect balance. You could take the things we were saying and just say, well, God loves me and praise God. It doesn't matter what I do. Well, what you do doesn't affect God's love for you. It doesn't affect what he's already provided by grace, but it does affect whether or not you receive it and see the benefit of it in your life. You have to access God's grace by faith. And so it's important that we study the word. It's important that we come to conferences, that we go to church, that we do different things, but not to make God love us, but it's to change our heart. Our holiness doesn't change God's heart towards us, but it'll change your heart towards God. That's a huge statement right there. Your holiness or lack thereof does not change God's love for you, but it will affect your love for God. It will affect how you receive. And so these two verses back to back show you the, what some people see as a contradiction, but it's not. It's a compliment. It fits together. It's not only what God has done for you, but you have to learn how to receive. And the reason we live holy is to keep Satan from stealing from us and making us hard hearted towards God. And uh, anyway, for time's sake, again, let me jump down to Romans chapter five. And in verse eight, it says, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, Arthur quoted this in a different translation, something about that this proved God's love for us in that he died for us while we were yet a sinner. The Lord didn't wait until you had cleaned your act up and until you had improved yourself and he died for you. He died for you while you were living in the midst of your sin. Actually, he died for you before you were ever born. So it has nothing to do with what you deserve. It wasn't that he saw you and said, man, they are so close. I've got to help them. No, it was like you were so desperate. I've got to help them because they can't help themselves. And he commended his love toward us in the while we were yet sinners. But you know, that verse, even though what I've just said is accurate, and often this verse is taken out of context to talk about God's great love for the sinner, and all of that is true, the point that he's making is that if God loved you enough that when you were yet a sinner, he died for you, the next verse says, much more than being now justified by his blood, that's talking about saved, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So really what he's doing is making a contrast. If you could accept that God loved you enough to die for you while you were still a sinner, how much more now that you are a Christian should you believe that God loves you? He loves you even more now. And yet, as a general rule, did you know religion, if they do preach true salvation, which there are, there's a large segment of the body of Christ that will extend grace towards a lost person. And they will tell them it's only by faith in Jesus. We'll sing the song, just as I am without one plea. And there is a large segment of the body of Christ that will preach that you get saved by putting faith in Jesus. But then as soon as you get saved, they put you back under the law and tell you now that you're born again, God expects you to live holy. And if you don't do this and this and this, they may tell you that you won't go to hell. You still go to heaven, but you won't get your prayers answered. 
God won't heal you. God won't bless you. God won't use you and on and on it goes. And so what they do is say you get saved by grace, but then you're basically maintained by your own holiness and your own good works. Again, that's a perversion of the gospel. This is saying just the opposite, that if Jesus loved you enough to die for you while you were yet a sinner, much more now does he love you. And then the next verse puts those two thoughts in one verse. For if when you were enemies... You were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, you shall be saved by his life. See, this puts those two thoughts into one verse. If you could accept while you were an enemy to God that he died for you, how much more now that you are one of his children does he love you? You know, take this comparison. Some of you were living in adultery. Some of you were lying and stealing. Some of you were mean as a snake and just terrible things going on in your life. And yet you heard somebody talk about that Jesus died for your sins. And you thought, could this be true? And they said, just like you are, just as I am without one plea. And so you accepted salvation and got the greatest miracle that you could ever get, which is the forgiveness of your sins and relationship with God through Jesus. Right in the midst of your sin. And yet, now here you are years later and you have a need for healing in your physical body. And you have the thought that if you don't study your Bible every day, if you miss a day of Bible reading, or if you get mad at your wife, or if you fail to do something that you did, God might just let you die of cancer and not heal you because you haven't done everything right. Can you see how inconsistent that is? You receive salvation totally by grace, but now you think I've got to earn these other things. It says in Colossians chapter two, verse six, as ye therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk ye in him. That means the same way that you receive salvation is the same way you receive healing, the same way you receive joy, the same way you receive anything else. If you receive salvation totally by faith in what Jesus did, that's the way you receive everything else in the Christian life. The problem is that we aren't walking by the same rule. Many people got saved by grace, by hearing the gospel, but you think that we somehow or another have to receive from God later by our own performance and by earning these things. You know, many Christians will live for years and then they'll do something and they just think, how could I have done this? And how could God love me after I've done this? And they just are so disappointed because they have the concept that over time you get stronger and stronger and stronger and better and better and better and more worthy of God loving. From human standpoint, compared to what you used to be, maybe that's true, but compared to God's perfect standard of holiness, the most holy person in here at your very best is a mile below what God intended you to be. God loves you in the beginning and throughout your entire walk on this earth by grace, by just looking at you through love, not because of your performance. And so when you get so disappointed, how could I have done this? I thought I was better than this. That's the reason you failed because you were thinking you were better. You know, I called a woman one time in Denver and I said, how are you? And she says, I'm weak in him. And when she said that, I thought, what does that mean? And I got to thinking about it. And I thought, you know, that's really pretty good. Paul said, when I'm weak, then am I strong? 
When you quit trusting in yourself and thinking that, man, you have really arrived. You're doing better than you've ever done. And now you have a lot of confidence because you've got so much time put in with God. Then you're weak. You're susceptible to failure because you really have a lot of confidence in yourself. But when you just say, Father, even at my very best, I still don't deserve anything. It's all because of the grace of God. That's what makes you strong. And that's when you really have power in your life. And um, man, again, I'm wanting to get to these other verses. I've got five minutes. This is impossible. Let me just say that I've got a great teaching. I've got a great teaching entitled The True Nature of God that is built on Romans 5, 13 and 14. You need to get that teaching. It is Christianity 101. What it'll do is basically harmonize the anger and the punishment and the wrath that you see in the Old Testament with the mercy and the grace that is evident through Jesus in the New Testament. And some people don't understand this. They just kind of run all of it together. There is a difference in the way God dealt with people under the Old Testament law and the way he deals with people under the New Testament grace. You need to get that teaching. That is awesome. I got about six or seven hours on these verses that I just skipped. But I want to share this with you that... um, after I'd had this experience and God showed me his love for me and it came at a time when I was at my worst and I knew I didn't deserve anything. And yet I felt supernatural love. Uh, Charles Finney described it, his, his experience. And he said it was like waves of liquid love flowing over him. And I thought, man, that was a good way of describing it. I mean, for four and a half months, I was gone someplace. I never slept over an hour at a time. I never sat down and ate. And I know I ate and slept, but I mean, I just grabbed, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't do anything because I was just so caught up with the fact that God loved me. And yet it was when I realized I didn't deserve God's love. So it was wonderful. But after four and a half months, the emotion of it wore off. And then I had to start dealing with Uh, how is this that God could love me? Because I don't deserve God to love me. And that's when God gave me this revelation of spirit, soul, and body. I was beginning to start seeing some things, but I was taught that I was unrighteous and I was unworthy. And the thought of being righteous was just anathema to me. It was blasphemy. It was terrible if a person would have said something like they are righteous. And, uh, so I still was struggling. I'd seen some of these things, but man, I hadn't embraced this thing that I was righteous yet. And I actually went to a Bible study taught by a woman, which I was raised in the Baptist church. And I was taught that a woman couldn't teach a man. And so that this was totally out of order. She was supposed to be quiet. And I went to this charismatic Bible study. This is before I spoke in tongues. And I went to this care. So I was, I had, I was scared that they were going to speak in tongues or something. So I was put off by that. A woman was leading the Bible study. I was put off by that. And there was a lot of hippies there, guys that had hair down nearly to their waist. And in the Baptist church, if your hair touched your collar, you just went straight to hell. There was no repentance. And so I was in a really awkward position and I was, I thought I was being very gracious to even go into this, you know, terrible, ungodly situation. And I was listening to this and what really got me, they were having a Bible study and one of these long haired hippies stood up and said, he was righteous. And I'd just taken all I could take, amen. (laughs) 
And I stood up and I said, there is none righteous. No, not one. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. All of your righteousness is as filthy rags. I whipped my three verses out on him and I let him have it. And I was braced for a fight. And to my surprise, he didn't get offended. He didn't get mad. He showed compassion and love. And all of the other guys, they started using about 10 verses that said, you are the righteousness of God for those three that I quoted. And it didn't totally convince me, but it knocked me off balance. And I thought, God, you know, the scripture says that by this shall you know that you're, shall they know that you're my disciples, that you have love one for another. And these guys loved me. These guys who I was convinced could not be born again because they had long hair. I, they, they loved me. They showed love to me when I attacked them. And man, it just disarmed me. And I went home and went out and bought a uh, Young's Analytical Concordance. And I looked up every time in the Bible that the word righteousness, righteousness, righteousness is was used. And there's well over a thousand of them. And I spent five days fasting and praying, studying 17 hours a day, writing out every verse in the Bible about righteousness. And at the end of those five days, I had to admit I was righteous because it's what the Bible said. (laughs) But I couldn't understand it. I, I couldn't, it's like I could see it, but I couldn't embrace it because it was so contrary to everything that I'd been taught. And the reason I say that is to say that these verses right here were the last nail in my self righteous coffin. These verses, there's five verses where he just makes these radical statements. Arthur, quoted some of them this morning, but let me go through these real quickly here in Romans chapter five and in verse uh, 15, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift for if through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God. Notice much more the grace of God. See, this is consistent with verse nine and verse 10 where he says, if you could be reconciled to God while you're an enemy, much more now. And so he's saying the same thing. He says, much more by the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ hath abounded unto many. Now, the reason this impacted me so much is because I had completely accepted this truth that through Adam, I became a sinner. It's not my individual sins that made me a sinner. It was my sin nature that I was born with that made me sin. I had had that taught to me from the time I was a little kid and I knew I was born in sin is what David said. That didn't mean he was born out of wedlock. It was just saying he was born with a sin nature. We were born separated from God. You don't have to teach a little baby to go out and be selfish and to offend and to do things. It's their nature to live in sin. It's their nature to be selfish. It's their nature to do this stuff. We were all born that way. I had accepted that. And this is saying that in the same way that I became a sinner through Adam, in the same but then the opposite way, I have now been made righteous, not because I deserve it, but because I accepted Jesus. In a sense, I didn't deserve to be born with a sin nature. I didn't do anything good or bad. It just was instilled in me. Likewise, I don't deserve to be righteous based on just my actions, but it was given to me. Righteousness was given to me as a free gift. 
And I just saw this and said, if I'm going to be honest, I've accepted one side of this coin. If that side is true, if it's a genuine coin, well, then I've got to accept the other side. If I'm going to accept that I was born in sin, then I have to accept that I was born again righteous. And then the next verse says the same thing in just another way. It says, and not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one, talking about Adam, to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. Adam's one sin caused all of us to be sinners. Jesus' one sacrifice overcame our millions and millions of sins to make us righteous. If I could be made a sinner through one man, I could be made righteous through one man. That's awesome. Verse 17, for if by one man's offense, death reigned by one. If you go and study this out on your own, it's just repeating over and over that it's what Adam did that made you a sinner. And if you're going to accept that, then what Jesus did makes you righteous, whether you deserve it or not. You just put faith in Jesus and you become righteous. For if by one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, Adam, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. You are righteous through Jesus. When you accept Jesus as your savior, you become righteous through what Jesus did. It's a gift. It is not based on your performance. The word righteous just means in right standing with God. God loves you because you put faith in his son and you have been cleansed and made righteous. Five verses make this point. If you're going to accept one truth, you've got to accept the apparent opposite truth, but it's the same thing just in an opposite direction. You were made a sinner through one man. Now you are made a saint through one man. You were made to be unrighteous. Now you are righteous through Jesus. You are the righteousness of God. I go into churches all the time and say, oh God, make me righteous. And I want to say, get born again. And the sad thing is they're already born again. And yet they're asking God to make them righteous. They don't understand what has already happened. And so let me just end with these last verses in verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. The law didn't enter to to minimize the offense, to minimize sin, to minimize our problem. It came to amplify sin and make it so big that we couldn't see any way around it. And we just had to say, oh God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. So the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, You know, it's not stated right here, but if you take it in context, sin reigned unto death through the law, through thinking that you had to live up to a standard. That's what empowered sin. First Corinthians 15, 56, the strength of sin is the law and it reigned unto death. Even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ, our Lord. Man, if you could understand this, it it just changes you. This transformed my life. 
And I began to start saying, you know, as Greg was teaching this morning, you have to declare that you have wisdom. I saw this and I just started declaring, God, I am righteous. The first time I ever did that, I looked in my mirror and I looked myself eyeball to eyeball. And I said, Andrew, you are the righteousness of God. And all of the hair on the back of my neck stood up. I thought, oh, inside, I said, oh, God, don't kill me. I'm just saying what the Bible says. I didn't feel it at all, but I saw it and I embraced it and I started confessing it. And, you know, it felt good. And so I said it again. And pretty soon I was looking at myself and shouting and saying, you are righteous. And I was seeing myself righteous. And, you know, I've got to quit, man. I went 10 minutes instead of five minutes. But let me just say that some of you are still saying, I just don't understand how God can call me righteous when I'm living like a sinner. And you don't know what I've done. It's because you're looking on your outer person. You're looking at your actions and searching your mind and emotions. But in your spirit, the born again part of you, you are created in righteousness and true holiness. Ephesians 4, 24. God is a spirit, John 4, 24. And he sees you in the spirit and God looks at you and you are as righteous and pure as Jesus is. But that's in your spirit You've got to become spiritually minded to be able to perceive this. This is why that teaching on spirit, soul, and body totally transformed my life. Amen. Amen. Praise God. I need to let you go. But let me ask again, if our prayer